Good morning once again. Please take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. We'll be reading verse 17 through the first verse of chapter 4. This is God's Word. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and a glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Amen. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Lord, our God, we thank you that you have given to us the scriptures. You have breathed them out. You have expired them. You have given to us your very word, spoken through the words of men. And you've given us the Bible. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we, your people, might be fully equipped for every good work. Lord, we ask that you would take this glorious text and that you would indeed give us the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus, that you would build your people up that you would glorify your name, Lord, that you would make us more and more what you have ordained for us to be. We thank you for this glorious day that you have set apart, a day in which we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord, give us the glorious hope that is set forth even in this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think with me for a moment this morning of all the different ways that you have experienced the transforming power of something new. Something new. Now, perhaps it is the arrival of spring. Has spring arrived yet? Does it feel like you haven't even mowed my yard yet? But but you know those other springs that you've had, right? Where the the, the leaves start to, to form that glorious green as they start to leaf out. The azaleas are in bloom. The, the dogwoods are in bloom. You You can wear shorts again. Right? You are able to, uh, to enjoy more of the day as the, the days lengthen, as the, the time goes forward. Perhaps you too feel right, that, that you're sharing in uh, the, the newness that you see in creation all around you. Perhaps for you, it's a, a new haircut. It's a, uh, it's a set of new clothes. It's, it's a new uh, car. It's a new job. Something you've experienced right, has, has made you feel new. It has made you experience that transformation. 
For me, one of those things as I was growing up was school. Right? I was one of those strange kids that loved school. And one of the things I loved about school was that every time school started, you got new school supplies. Right? And every time school started, you got a new schedule, a new route right? that you would walk around the campus. It was invigorating. But perhaps for me, the best example, the clearest and most recent example of, of the transforming power of something new is a new floor plan. Do you know this? Have you experienced this? I, just recently, we took my little study that I have upstairs and, and we rearranged, literally moved like three pieces of furniture. We turned the desk around, we moved a bookcase to the side and we brought a chair in. And it's like a completely new room. Right, completely new zeal to be in that room, a, a completely new feel. Right? It's, it's completely more wide open than it once was. Even though it's such a tiny room, it feels completely different. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you bought a new house. Maybe you just changed the floor plan of an existing room. And, and all of a sudden, the way that you experience that room, the way that you look at that room, the way you live in that room, your desire to be in that room has completely changed. On our text this morning, Paul is speaking of the transforming power, not of a new schedule, not of, of a new floor plan. He's speaking of the transforming power of the new life in Jesus Christ for all who believe in him. If you have trusted in the risen Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, Paul is telling us here in this passage, then all things have been and will be made new. And that newness changes everything. That newness changes everything. This morning, I want us to see three things, three new things that Paul says are ours if we believe in Jesus Christ. Two of them we already have. One of them we will have. I want us to see these new things, but also I want you to see how these new realities transform us day by day. First, Paul tells us in this text that those who trust in the risen Lord Jesus have a new citizenship, a new citizenship. You see it there in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says to the Philippians. He's just been speaking to them, as you see, of the enemies of the cross, right? those who do not walk according to the apostolic example and the pattern of life that Paul and his colleagues have set. Those whose end is destruction, Paul says. Their God is their belly, their appetite. They glory in their shame with minds set only on earthly things. And the reason that they do these things is because they are citizens of this world only, Paul is saying. But believers, Christians, who have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we have a new homeland. We have a new commonwealth, a new citizenship in heaven where the living Christ reigns at the right hand of his heavenly father. We have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light. We have been made citizens of a new world, this, this heavenly Realm, we are now, as believers, a colony of heaven on earth. Now, the Philippians, to whom Paul is writing, they would have grasped this reality perhaps even better than we do. Because you see, not 
about a hundred years before Paul wrote this, their ancestors had experienced a similar change in their earthly status, right? In 42 BC, Julius Caesar's nephew, Octavian, eventually known as Caesar Augustus, he had made this city of Philippi in modern day Turkey, he had made it a Roman colony. He had filled it with retired soldiers who had just defeated Brutus and Cassius in the, the final defeat of the Roman Republic. He had brought these soldiers or had left them there and said, you are citizens of the Roman Empire. Here you are, right, far away from Italy, far away from Rome, and yet you are a colony of Rome. You are citizens of Rome. You are governed as if you are on Italian soil. You live by Roman law. You dress as the Romans do. You experience the Roman customs and, and language and Roman architecture. You are a Roman colony. You're living outside of Rome, but, but you're living as citizens of Rome. And the same is true, Paul is saying, of us. To these Christians in Philippi, he's saying, because you belong to Jesus Christ, you belong to another country altogether. Yes, he would say to them, be thankful for your Roman citizenship. You remember how many times Paul himself appeals to that reality. I'm a citizen of Rome. And yet Paul is saying, as a believer in Christ, you belong to an even greater commonwealth than Rome. You have an even more important citizenship. You have an even more glorious ruler than Caesar, Philippians. The Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns at the right hand of the Father, who is Lord of heaven and earth. And if you are a believer this morning, Paul would say the same is true of you. You are in union with Jesus Christ. You have died with him. You've been raised up with him. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. For when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't merely rise for himself alone. But as we've already confessed this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus rose as a representative for all of his people, all who would put their trust in him. Just as everyone in Adam by nature experiences death, so everyone in Jesus Christ by faith experiences life. There is a new creation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are a new humanity, a new people, an outpost of glory on this earth. We are citizens of heaven. And that reality changes everything. It transforms everything about us. It gives us a new focus, a new character, a new direction, a new orientation, new concerns. We are now to live as if we were dwelling in our heavenly home. Look at verse 17 again. Paul has just commanded the Philippians to join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then he gives two reasons why they should imitate him. The first is there in verse 18. We are to follow the example of Paul because those who are citizens of this world only are setting another example. Right? They're living a life diametrically opposed to godliness. They are seeking to draw us away from the Lord. And then in verse 20, he gives the second reason. For you are citizens of heaven. We now walk as those whose citizenship is not merely here on earth. And therefore our God is no longer our belly. 
Our God is no longer our appetites, our, our physical and sensual desires. We're no longer to glory in shameful ways. Our minds are no longer to be set, to be fixed, to be fixated upon earthly things, but upon heavenly things. And so we think about our own life. Yes, we are Americans. You perhaps are a citizen of another country if you're here from out of the country. Whatever earthly country you belong to, you are citizens of that place. But if you're a Christian, you have a dual citizenship, Paul says. Our primary citizenship, our, our most fundamental citizenship is in our heavenly kingdom. And as the Bible is clear, we are strangers and aliens and exiles here, even here in America. It's so easy, isn't it, to forget our heavenly citizenship. Perhaps it's because we get completely consumed with, with the ordinary day-to-day, -day, paying the bills, running errands, going to all the different places we've got to go. And perhaps it's because of an idolatrous pride in our country. Perhaps it's, it's because we confuse America with the chosen people of God. Perhaps it's because we have an ungodly overlove for all the comforts that this country affords us. Whatever the reason might be, we have to remember that this world, this country is not our primary home. We have a new citizenship in heaven. And yes, though we have responsibilities to this country as citizens of it, to seek the welfare where God has called us into exile, as Jeremiah puts it. We must never forget the heavenly Jerusalem, our heavenly homeland. Just like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego there in Babylon lived as God's people, no matter how they were tempted to abandon the ways of the Lord. So we too must live as the people of God, no matter how idolatrous, how ungodly our culture becomes. For one day, that heavenly citizenship will be all there is. And that brings us to the second thing that Paul tells us is new. Those who trust in the risen Christ don't only have a new citizenship, we have a new expectation. A new expectation. Look again at verse 20. Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are citizens of heaven, we wait. And the sense of that word wait is, is an eager waiting, an eager expectation and longing. We have a new expectation, a new anticipation, a new desire and hope. The one who died and rose again is coming back. And he will destroy this world and he will bring in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, to be sure, in this life, in this world, the Lord God has given his people so much richly to enjoy, hasn't he? And yet, we know, we've experienced even these past weeks, in this world, we have affliction, we have sorrow, we are persecuted, we are opposed as believers. But because we know, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, as we've just sung, that this light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, what do we do? We look to the things, not that are seen, but that are unseen. For we have a new expectation, a new prospect, a new hope. You see, if, if you don't know the, the risen Lord Jesus this morning, then what verse 18 says is true of you. Your only expectation, your only hope is destruction. 
It is the eternal condemnation that awaits every sinner who would stand before the judgment seat of God dressed in his or her own righteousness, his or her own goodness. You're an inmate on death row. Death row, you are waiting for Jesus to return, not as a savior, but as a judge to declare you guilty and to execute the sentence upon you because of your rebellion against him and his father. You may not feel the terror of this, and yet it is true. It is real. You are outside of Christ. You are resting in your own goodness on a righteousness that you have built. That is no righteousness at all. And so your end is destruction. This is your expectation. This is your hope. But it's no hope at all, is it? It's hopeless. But if you would trust in Christ Jesus this day, if you would look to him in faith, then you would no longer await a judge. But as Paul says, with us who have believed in Christ, you would await a savior. Believers long for Jesus to return because we know that it will mean the completion of our salvation, the consummation of all that we have come to desire. And again, this new expectation changes everything. It transforms everything for us. No longer do we go through life with a guillotine hanging over our head, for we have been saved by grace, through faith, apart from works. As Carl in his prayer so beautifully alluded to, that early part of Philippians chapter 3, where Paul reminds us that, that we found in Christ do not have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. It depends alone on faith. This is our hope. We know the freedom as believers through Jesus' death and resurrection, the freedom both from the penalty of sin, the guilt of sin, but also from the power of sin. We are those who have become and are becoming more and more able to wait on Jesus, no longer living for the immediate gratification of the moment but able to, to wait, learning how to delay gratification in every area of our life. We are learning to live not according to our feelings and lust, to our desires and appetites, but according to the word of our king, the apostolic example and pattern. Now, to be sure, as Paul will go on to remind us here in, in, in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, none of us who know Christ do this perfectly. We still fall short of what we even ourselves know we ought to be. But isn't this what makes this new expectation all the sweeter? This new desire, this new hope that when Christ returns, he will fully and finally save us. Not merely from sin's penalty and power, but from its very presence. And so, as Paul says there in verse 14, we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ, because we know that one day our Savior is going to come again to complete our salvation. Which brings us to the last point. The last thing that Paul would say is, is part of this newness that Christ has brought. Not only do we who trust in the risen Christ have a new citizenship and a new expectation, but one day when Jesus Christ returns, we will have in the future a new body as well. Again, look there at verse 21. 
The Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of our own resurrection. It's the down payment that we who die, if we believe in him, will be raised up to newness of life. Not only is our soul being transformed and conformed to be like Jesus, but one day he will powerfully transform even our mortal bodies so that they will be like his as well. Think about your lowly body, as Paul puts it, the body of your humble state. The Bible is clear. The body is not inherently evil. And yet, and yet, because of sin, our body is subject to decay and disease. Our strength fails. Our, our mental powers wane. We endure all manners of indignity and humiliation and weakness, and then we die. I mean, that is life in this fallen world. And throughout our lives, our body plays a, a, a part in all of our sin. There is this downward pull on our spiritual growth, a, a backward pull, we might say. Right? Our eyes, our minds, our, our hands, our feet, they lead us into sin. They bring us places we do not want to go. Even when our spirit is willing, our body is weak. But one day, one day, Paul is saying, all of that will change. One day when Christ returns, our body will be raised up from the grave. Or if we were, are still alive, when he comes in a moment, in the twinkling of eye, our body will be changed. And the paradigm, the prototype of our resurrected body is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, his glorious body. From corruption to incorruption, from mortality to immortality, from humility and dishonor to glory, from weakness to power and strength. Death will be swallowed up in victory on the last day as Christ exerts his infinite power over all creation. And again, this future new body, it transforms everything about us in the here and now. For on the one hand, we know that this earthly body is not going to last forever. And so we do not fall into the world's trap of worshiping it, of worshiping eternal youth. Isn't it fascinating? It seems like so often you will hear stories about folks, particularly in the technological you know, world, seeking to live forever, right? They are going to figure out a way to capture our, our minds, to upload them to, to, to hard drives and, and put us into androids. And you think, this is the only hope they have, right? Because they know they're going to die. They know that their body is one day going to decay. There's nothing they can do to stop it as much as they try. And yet as believers, because we know that is true, we know that we don't have to worry. We don't have to worship our body. We don't have to treat this body as if we've got to keep it alive. But on the other hand, as believers, knowing that these bodies are the bodies the Lord has given us in this life to worship him in. Even though they are weak, even though they are sinful, they are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells within us and we've been bought with a price, the price of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore we seek to glorify the Lord even in these lowly bodies. And again, as Paul has described the, the way of the unbeliever, 
We read this and see the way that we as believers ought to live and think. No longer do we glory in our shame. No longer are we to worship our bodies and do whatever they tell us to do. Rather, we use these bodies to glorify the Lord, to serve him and one another until he gives us a new body, until he gives us a new way that we would live for his glory. When body and soul are reunited in the kingdom to come, what a glorious day that will be. And the hope of that changes how we live now. Though we do not experience that transformation, that, that renovation, that resurrection of our body until the age to come, yet even now, as Paul reminds us here in Philippians 3.10, we can know the power of his resurrection now in this age. And we can know it even as we suffer in the body, Paul says. We know that in our sufferings, we are sharing the sufferings of Christ. We are being conformed to his death. And so as we suffer, how does Paul put it in Romans chapter 8? Having the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves. We groan, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the resurrection and the redemption of our body. And so in this confident groaning, we stand firm, as Paul puts it in 4.1. We stand firm against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We stand firm in the Lord and we press on toward the goal for the upward call of God in Christ. In spite of all of our failures, in spite of all of our struggles, in spite of all of our falling and stumbling, in the face of every temptation and persecution, we press on in this glorious hope of a new body to come. So this is the Christian's new life in Christ a new citizenship, a new expectation, a new body. Go back to that opening question I asked you. What is it that makes you feel new? Well, everything that you might give as an answer will one day become old. Right? The beauty of spring eventually will fade away. New clothes, new shoes, they, they wear out or they, they go out of style. A new schedule becomes routine and road. A new floor plan becomes, eh, we've got to change it again. It becomes constraining, something that's boring. But the newness that we possess in the risen Christ, the newness that he has purchased for us by his death and resurrection will never fade away. It is here to stay. And the transformation that we experience as a result of this newness is ever increasing. God has predestined his people to be conformed to the image of his son. And he will cause that to happen both in soul and in body. And so as Paul puts it so plainly in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 18, as we behold, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the other. So let us behold the glory of of the Lord, the newness of the Lord. I want to close with one of my favorite scenes from the cartoon version of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've never seen this 1979 cartoon of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you can find it on YouTube. I commend it to you. It's fun to watch. But there's this one scene at the very end, after the great Aslan has risen from the dead. And you remember Aslan represents the Lord Jesus Christ in the story. And he's come back to life. 
And he's leaping and playing and bounding with Susan and Lucy. And from every place that he jumps, in the cartoon version, they've done this beautiful thing. Whenever Aslan jumps, where he was standing turns into flowers. And every time he jumps, new flowers appear. He jumps again, flowers. He leaps and bounds throughout the pasture, flowers, flowers, flowers. It's this beautiful picture of wherever the Lord Jesus Christ comes, there is new life, there is beauty, there is glory. I love that picture. I love seeing that scene. And my prayer this morning is that you, each one of you would know that experience personally, that the risen Christ would leap and play within your life, that he would reveal to you the already of his grace and glory that it would become this solid reality in your life, that these things are true of me, but that the not yet would capture your imagination, that it would capture your mind, that this also will be true. And that as the Lord Jesus leaps and plays in your heart, his resurrection would burst forth in transforming newness in your life day by day. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, but for whatever reason you have shown up to church this morning, we extend to you the, the command of God, the invitation of God to come to Christ, to know the newness of life that belongs to all who put their trust in him and in him alone. You are without hope. You are without hope, but if you would look to Christ, you would have a new hope. May the Lord grant all of us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might experience the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, only you can do that. Only you are able to take your word and plant it deep within our souls. So Lord, I pray that you would convert the unconverted, that you would give new life and call us to be born again. All of those, Lord, that you have chosen from before the foundation of the world. And for your people this morning, Lord, would you solidify their hope? Would you ground them in the grace of the gospel? Lord, would you help them to live a new life that you have called them to? Would you give them grace, Lord, to desire, to long for your return? Oh, Father, give us this, we pray, because we cannot manufacture it on our own, in our own strength or abilities. Lord, we desperately need you to come and to transform us by your truth and grace. And we pray that you would do it together, Lord, as a body, that we as a body of Christ here at Pear Orchard, Lord, would walk in this glorious reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the future resurrection of our own bodies. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.